This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to South China Sea Currents, our weekly podcast on what's happening in the South China Sea, where we review recent events, diplomatic developments, and how we've been covering them at Radio Free Asia and Banana News. I'm joined by our South China Sea reporter, Drake Long. How's it going, Drake? It's going pretty good. How about you? Yeah, pretty good. So Friday saw something unusual at the summit of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN. For one, it was a virtual summit because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So there were no awkward pictures of the leaders linking arms, as there usually is. And secondly, the 10-nation bloc spoke with one voice in a way that was implicitly critical of China. In their joint statement, they called not just for freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, they called for freedom of overflight as well. So, Drake, why was that significant? Right. Well, to understand why the freedom of overflight bit is important, you have to go back and remember that there have been rumors going around for a while that China wants to declare an air defense identification zone in the South China Sea uh, unilaterally. That was apparently a credible enough rumor that the USA spoke about it. Vietnam was worried about it. Other ASEAN countries were concerned about it. And now we're seeing this joint statement come out where they say we want freedom of overflight. And that is implicitly about the threat of an air defense identification zone. Uh, it was actually a little bit predicted because the prime minister of Vietnam, who's chairing the ASEAN meeting, released a statement at the beginning saying that we need to, as a bloc, adhere to UNCLOS, which is pretty common. Um, they always kind of say that. But we also need to adhere to the regulations set up by the ICAO, International Civil Aviation Organization. And that made me and some other people raise some eyebrows and assume that overflight was going to be a topic that was brought up. And sure enough, it was. Uh, they reached consensus on it and said, we want freedom of overflight which is obviously related to the ADIZ issue. Okay, so, you know, can you recap for us what an air defense identification zone actually is? Sure. So we wrote an article about this a little while ago. An air defense identification zone is not the same as a no-fly zone. It doesn't technically cover your airspace. You're saying that commercial aircraft, passenger planes, cargo planes, what have you, have to at least warn you or send a message to the radio tower that you're coming into this air defense identification zone. The USA has some, China infamously declared one over the East China Sea. Declaring one over the South China Sea is a much bigger area. It was essentially acquire any aircraft passing through the South China Sea to announce to China that it is doing so. And it's kind of an implicit recognition of Chinese sovereignty over the area. So you really have a situation where all the Southeast Asian countries are going to be in a position where they really don't want their um, commercial aircraft. They don't want any of their aircraft phoning into China and saying, we're entering your airspace. They don't want that type of situation to come up. They don't want to give that implicit recognition. So how unusual is it for the 10 members of ASEAN to speak with one voice, to come out and say something that China probably will be quite annoyed about? Very unusual. It's extremely unusual. I mean, you even got Laos and Cambodia to sign on to this, which is Interesting, because uh, they're not necessarily pro-China, but they're the ones that are the most apathetic when it comes to the South China Sea issue, mostly because they don't have any claims. It's a very heterogeneous uh, grouping, and for them to all come together on one thing is pretty unusual. Cambodia said very plainly, like, we're going to stay neutral on the South China Sea issue. And most people might be frustrated on that and say, they're just taking China's side again. But if they're signing on to statements like this, which talk about things like freedom of overflight, that actually means that they're moving a little bit closer to ASEAN on things. And I think that's very easily explained by the fact that they may not have claims, maritime claims in the South China Sea, but Laos and Cambodia are obviously very concerned about overflight. They still fly through the area. They don't want ADIZ either. So I think ASEAN 
finally found something that they can come together as a block on and definitively tell China, you know, even if you're thinking this, you might put it in place, you might not, it might be feasible, it might not. Don't even think about it. We're very much against it. So how far do you think this unity in, among the ASEAN nations is going to go? So it seems like overflight, allowing China to set up an ADIS is a bridge too far for a Southeast Asian bloc. But on the other issues about the territorial disputes and China's other sort of assertive actions in those seas, I mean, are we going to see a tougher stance from ASEAN? I actually think this is probably as good as it's going to get. That's my opinion. I, I don't think you're going to see a joint statement that pushes back on China's claims in any meaningful way, to be honest with you. Okay, so we can't expect a new dawn in ASEAN where they suddenly take a tough stance against China because a lot of these nations have a huge strategic interest in their relationship with China. Yeah, yeah, almost definitely. Especially like say, Cambodia and Laos, as you mentioned. So while ASEAN has been saying this stuff and meeting this week, what's China been doing? Well, China's been doing a lot, uh, mostly in the East China Sea, actually. The East China Sea is the uh, joining area with Japan, so a lot of action on a lot of China's borders lately. So within the East China Sea, there's this chain of islets called the Senkakus, totally uninhabited, that are occupied and owned by Japan, but China claims them, very similar to the South China Sea issue. So last week, we had a situation where the Japanese Coast Guard said China's been very provocative around the Senkaku Islands. They've maintained a continuous China Coast Guard presence around the area. There is a Chinese submarine that passed within 24 nautical miles of the Senkakus. That may have prompted this, probably not. But on Sunday, Japan said, we're going to actually uh, rename the administrative district around the Senkakus to put Senkaku in the name. Names have power, and China kind of backed that up one day later by protesting by putting their own list of names out for undersea features in the East China Sea. We saw this before with the South China Sea with that list of 55 undersea features. They've simply done it once more in the East China Sea. It's a way of kind of saying these have historical Chinese names to them. Somehow that gives us historic rights to the area, although that's never been backed up by international law. And then on top of that, you've been having a lot of diplomatic kind of back and forth between Japan and China lately over that East China Sea issue. So how did Japan react to China announcing these names for these features under the East China Sea? Well, they simply said it doesn't matter. They said um, it, it doesn't affect sovereignty at all. They, they took a very, I think, blunt approach to it. On top of that, the Japanese Minister of Defense, Teru Kono, had a speech at the Foreign Correspondence Conference where he said, you know, China has actually upped its defense spending so much, and it's had this continuous presence around the Senkakus. The situation is very bad. Our fighter jets are scrambling every single day to deal with China. I think it's very important that we kind of advertise what's going on in the East China Sea. So you're actually seeing this desire to publicize China's aggressive behavior more often. And this is actually, you know, simultaneous with a, a number of overflights over Taiwan's airspace and air defense identification zone by Chinese fighter jets lately. Now, when uh, uh, Minister Taro Kono was speaking at the Foreign Correspondents Club in Tokyo, he also talked a little bit about the South China Sea. And I understand that the U.S. and Japan were doing some naval drills in that area this week. Yeah, absolutely. So in response to rumored Chinese submarine activity and a more aggressive posture in general, on Monday, you had Japan and Singapore have a training drill, actually, in the South China Sea. The next day, you had Japan and the USA have a bilateral naval exercise in the South China Sea. So for Japan, I think it's extremely clear that they see the East China Sea issue and the South China Sea issue pretty linked. 
they, they obviously think that China's pressure in the East China Sea is very similar to what they do in the South China Sea. And I would say that's very backed up by the fact that China has released a meaningless list of undersea features for both areas within the same few months period. And on top of that, you have this general idea that Japan kind of wants to let ASEAN countries and, and other Southeast Asian countries understand that everything that they're facing, Japan is also dealing with. Maybe that'll lead to greater cooperation in the future. Like I said, Japan and Singapore drilled together this week. Not 100% clear how that'll shake out. It does seem that Japan is engaging on the South China Sea more than it used to in the past. So that's kind of uh, definitely one to watch. Absolutely. Now, another thing that you reported on this week it was about events in the paracels, this time by China at Woody Island. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so... Checking satellite imagery of Woody Island, which is China's biggest base in the Paracels, they've actually resumed dredging, I found. Between April 17th and June 25th, there's this area in the northwest corner near the smaller of its two harbors where they have very definitively dredged out this shallow fringing reef. They've dug up the sand. The water looks different in that area definitively. And they've been building out this strange lattice of uh, sandbars and walkways. That doesn't look to be anything definitive right now. Um, not too sure what it's going to be, but simply the foundation for something bigger. So China's resumed dredging. You know, in 2017, everybody kind of assumed that they were done with the large-scale land reclamation. But for a number of reasons, they appear to be continuing with it, at least at Woody Island. So tell us a little bit about Woody Island, but why is that an important place for China? Woody Island is probably China's biggest base in the South China Sea more broadly that is settled. Uh, they have about a thousand people living there on Sansha City. A lot of them are civilians, nominally civilians. It, it's probably their most developed settlement in the area. We've had Chinese military aircraft land on Woody Island before. There is a constant Coast Guard presence rotating throughout it. There's a constant presence of the People's Armed Forces Maritime Militia, the, the paramilitary uh, fishing boats that you see rotate throughout it. And increasingly, we're seeing it become the sort of hub for all these pressure campaigns that China does. So there's this activity at Woody Island. Now, this sort of brings back to mind the grand land reclamations that China was carrying out a few years ago at various places in, in the Spratleys and uh, in the Paracels. So... Are we, do you think we're going to see more of this? And what would be the consequence of, of China building out Woody Island? I would say that the large-scale reclamation that built up, you know, Fiery Cross Reef, Subi Reef, Mischief Reef, and Woody Island, the large-scale reclamation is done. I think that they've kind of built those islands out as much as they need foundation-wise to serve their purposes. But they're clearly moving forward with some small-scale reclamation. This could turn into large-scale reclamation. We still have to keep tabs on it, to be honest with you. But right now, it's in a very early stage. It's not clear what they're building exactly. It could be a jetty. It could be a yacht club. Not sure. But it's definitely not to the scale it was between 2014 and 2016, where they were building these whole islands and military bases out of nothing. And the international response, there's a lot of condemnation, but no real action about it. So with the smaller scale activity, you'll see protests, you'll see protests from Vietnam especially, but you're really not going to see any action to kind of halt it. Okay, well, thanks, Drake, for walking us through that. And we'll have to keep an eye on what China does next and how other nations react if it does restart some land reclamation. If you have any questions or feedback, please email us on South China Sea, all one word, at rfa.org, or follow Drake on Twitter. His handle is drm underscore long.
And for those of you listening, please check out Drake's previous articles on those and other topics about South China Sea at rfa.org and bananews.org. In particular, uh, as I always mention, there's a great multimedia presentation on China's naming of 80 obscure features in the South China Sea. I'm Matt Pennington with Drake Long, the South China Sea reporter for Radio Free Asia and Banana News. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again. Music